some people found it actually very refreshing that I hadn't gone to journalism school because they hadn't either. And so that they actually wanted that. And I sort of assumed early on that I would be not have as much to offer somebody who had had you know, either had a staff job or had a degree in journalism. But as it's turned out, many of those people may know how to really report a story well and do a great job in terms of content, but they don't know how to get the work. Like they're missing the sort of the business side of things. Hello, and welcome to Freelance Pod. My name's Sachandrika Chakrabarti, and I'll be your host. Freelance Pod is all about how the internet has revolutionized work. Each week, I'll speak to someone working in a creative field and ask them how their industry has moved from an analogue to a digital age or how the internet has invented their job. If you like what we're talking about in the podcast, please do get involved on social. You can find Freelance Pod on Instagram as at FreelancePod, on Twitter as at Freelance underscore pod underscore. There's a Facebook group called Freelance Pod, and you can also sign up for the newsletter. The URL is in the show notes. Don't forget that the success of this podcast relies on you, the listeners. If you do enjoy it, please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes. This means that other listeners will find out that this podcast exists and they'll come and join us too. On this episode, you'll hear from Rebecca L. Weber, who's a South Africa-based journalist, writing coach and podcast host. Rebecca runs the Writing Coach podcast. And she's also available to give online tuition to people who want to get into freelance journalism. Rebecca herself started out in teaching before moving into journalism and then using her teaching experience to also become a writing trainer online. And she starts off this episode by talking about Instagram, which is where we met each other. And Instagram is really completely necessary for podcasts because it's a visuals-led platform. And if there's one thing that audio needs, it is visuals. And Rebecca also mentions how much she enjoys watching Instagram stories. And again, with audio, there's a whole dimension hidden from you. For instance, right now, I am literally standing in my wardrobe with my head between two of my dresses, a really classic navy long sleeve one on the right, and a red snakeskin print one on the left. And um, this is the best place in my flat to get a bit of soundproofing to record each episode's intro. And so uh, going back to the Instagram stories bit, they always feel like looking behind the scenes and it's another really nice way of giving visuals to a podcast. So I'll hand over to Rebecca. Here she is. Instagram is definitely my favourite and I... I do tend to watch it more than I actually post. (laughs) I really like the Instagram stories. I like watching people's stories. And I think it's, I think it's the most fun thing on, on social media, but the, um, the, the graphic that I have, the cover art actually comes from having sort of two different audiences, sort of working with clients who are, you know, editors and clients who are writers. And my website for a very long time was, you know, hand coded. I did it initially. It was hand coded. I did it myself in HTML, and then at some point, I discovered WordPress and sort of. But it's always been a very DIY website. The site initially was supposed to just a very very simple portfolio site, so that if I was contacting an editor who I'd never worked with, I could say, "Here's my clips. 
you can go there and see some samples of my work. And then many years later, I sort of added this blog on so that it could just sort of help the site out. And then I started really intentionally trying to use it as a place to provide resources and materials, um, videos and PDFs and all the stuff for writers. But this is all sort of piggybacked on top of the stuff for editors and clients. And I suppose also for sources, because I realized after a few years that Oftentimes when I would ask somebody if I could interview them, they'd be going to my website to decide if they wanted to talk with me or not. But the website is totally not set up to handle all those different audiences. And I think that when you come on the front page, it's not exactly clear what's there or where you're supposed to go. So anyway, for the first time, I hired somebody to help me redo the website. And this was around the time that I was starting the podcast. And I said, by the way, could you also please make a graphic for the podcast that will make sense with the website? And this was basically the, the, the very, the first draft that she gave us that this is fantastic. It's got this cute little pencil and it says writing coach podcast. And I was just like, I love it. And let me use that. And so the website itself will be redone soon. <laughs> It'll be complete. It'll be, it will be live soon, I guess I should say. But that's sort of where that came about. So she was not even really a graphic designer, but she, you know, sort of did that in, in as part of the project for the um, for the site. I know that a lot of people do um, a special piece of art for every single episode. And I don't do that. I, I sort of found early on that all of the, <laughs> that I could spend a lot more time on promotion of the episodes than I actually do. Um, you know, there's, I, I was always sort of focusing on how long it t- took to conceive of and record and edit and not so much, you know, writing the show notes and creating a new image and then telling everybody about it, writing a whole new newsletter episode about it and putting it on stories and Facebook and all that stuff. It's, it is a lot of time. So, um, so I've just basically been sticking with that, the little yellow pencil, every episode, I figure people can sort of start to notice that. And, and also it is a little bit, I think, distinctive because if somebody searches for writing coach podcast on iTunes or wherever, I'm not the only writing coach. Um, and so I sort of say, just look for the yellow pencil and they can find that and say, this is, this is actually hers. This is, must be the one I'm, I'm looking for. Um, I have noticed that there are a lot of pod podcast I've, I've noticed that there are a lot of covers with podcast art that are very nice graphics in and of themselves but they don't show up very well when they're tiny on a phone i think a lot of people don't anticipate that so i like the idea that there's just sort of a very simple bold color bold graphic and that's it people get it with a pencil that this is for writers even though nobody writes with a pencil anymore <laughs> i wasn't writing journalism i had no intention to be a journalist you know, as a kid, I was one of those classic people who loved to read, loved to write, and I didn't really think about it much in college. It seemed to me like a really reasonable career path that you would just sort of graduate and start writing novels. <laughs> it seemed really, you know, so there's all this proof. There's all these books in the library. It must not be that hard. And um, and then I sort of, for a year, right after, right after I finished my undergrad, I came to South Africa to teach for a year. And then I thought, ooh, like this is quite interesting and quite satisfying in so many ways. I was teaching English as a, as a second language in rural farm schools in South Africa. And at the same time, I hadn't, I hadn't been trained as a teacher. So I thought I should actually probably, <laughs> if I wanted to do this, I should probably actually get training. And so that's what I did. And I pursued, I went back and went back to the States and got a master's degree in education. And that was really the field that I thought was a good fit for me. 
And the program I was in was in education and they sort of expected or their pedagogical outlook, I guess, was that if you were going to teach reading, you must be a reader. If you're going to teach writing, you must be a writer, which was, you know, made lots of sense to me. And so, as I say, like I was always writing, but it was it was not intended for publication and it was not intended was certainly not intended as journalism. It was either sort of academic writing or reflecting on my teaching or just personal projects. It was a volunteer program. It was a year-long volunteer program. And you only had to do extremely minimal volunteer hours to come then and, and help in the, in the schools. And then when I went back to the States, I went to Teachers College at Columbia University in New York. And that was, it was a master's in English education intended to be a high school English teacher for students whose first language was English. So the reality was that teaching in New York, many of my students, their first language wasn't English, but they were still in a mainstream English classroom. And then I taught for a while in the Washington DC area. And there also, there's a lot of immigrants. There's a lot of people who speak English quite well. They have sort of native or near native proficiency, but it's still not their first language. And so I was mostly teaching, you know, yeah, uh, composition, um, humanities writing, and and literature classes. So, I mean, they were great. They were a lot of fun. Um, but <laughs> um, I I definitely considered myself a writer because, from my point of view, as you know, I thought a writer writes. And because I wasn't really thinking that much about publication, I didn't have any of the hangups about like, well, this hasn't gotten published. I was like, I'm, I I wrote it, <laughs> therefore, you know, it, it seemed very simple to me. I didn't have a lot of um, qualifications about what a writer has to be at that point. I just thought a writer writes and that's what I was doing. So when I began freelancing, I did incorporate education or my background in education in the sense that at least early on, I did a fair number of stories about education. Like if you if you do have that sort of deep knowledge in a certain area, it was easier for me to go and to talk to teachers who are often either instructed not to talk to the media or are reluctant to. And, you know, you could start, you know, have establish that rapport more easily. But um Otherwise, I, th I think it was nearly a decade or about a decade where I was just focusing on the freelancing itself. And I had left, you know, I thought of education was my first career and this is my second career. And then I sort of came up with the idea of, oh, I would think I would like to start teaching this a bit, doing some public speaking, doing some classes. And that is, has just become really, really fascinating. I mean, it, to me, it's now one of the most interesting parts of what I do is being able to take what I have learned, both on the sort of the how to do things in terms of, you know, writing a pitch or structuring a story or any of those kind of how to things, but also um, all of the all of the mental drama that comes along with 10 years of freelancing of, you know, how do you how to keep going through um, all the all the difficulties that come up, you know, all the stuff outside of the actual reporting and writing itself. The initial transition from teaching to journalism was I was teaching at uh, George Mason University, which is in Northern Virginia, suburban Washington, D.C. And I said I was just going to take one semester off. <laughs> um, this is a really long time ago. And I thought, you know, I had done a little bit of editing and I think I'd like that. And I got a job as a copy editor or a sub editor at a local publication. And really quickly, I, I said, 
I actually don't want to be editing. I'd like to be writing. We worked with freelance writers. We didn't have any staff writers. And I, I found it really, really fascinating what they were doing. And as it was, this publication had little to no, mostly no interest in me actually writing for them because they normally worked with these very advanced um, uh, very experienced freelance journalists and so they didn't really need me they needed me as a copy editor and so I paid close attention to what those writers were doing how they got work how the editors responded to, to them and and how they interacted and I started pitching on the side and then I sort of was doing that as much as I could you know in the evenings and on the weekends and sometimes at lunch. And eventually there was just sort of a tipping point of, okay, I actually want to give this a go and try doing this full time. And that was in 2004. Um, so it is, it is quite a long time ago. Um, and yeah, obviously I never, I never went back to the traditional um, sort of day job situation as the editor and, and clearly never went back to um, the university <laughs> setting. For me, that's part of the interest of freelancing as well. I think it's different from being that staff writer where there's going to be more routine. As a freelancer, you get to, or I certainly have gotten to do probably more different kinds of topics, work with more different kinds of editors, and that is definitely stimulating. But the being able to look at those ideas with people who are working out the same kind of problems, or maybe I'm a little bit ahead of where they were or where they currently are. It is, it is super interesting. And it's real interesting what you say about the physicality of going in for training. I'm, I'm living now in Cape Town in South Africa and I do sometimes do these live. Uh, I, I've, I've done live, live classes. Sometimes I go in and do a live training for half a day and it's 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 a great reminder of how different it is to be there in the physical room with people. Whereas a lot of my training now is online with Zoom. You know, it's just these video calls, which are great and fun in their own right, but um, you have very different feedback from people through a computer screen <laughs> than you do when you're sitting in a room and everyone is there, physically present and and really tuned in to figuring out solutions together and that that sort of that that collective energy is really really interesting and exciting and yeah I think it I think that it actually also helps me to clarify sometimes for myself what I need to do next because I said it I often do work through a sort of concepts in my journal like here's what's going on here's the problem you know what are my options how can I try and solve this and then if I've done that several times around something similar then I feel much more comfortable teaching it but then once you start teaching it and you start applying it to other people's sort of similar situations, you come up with, with a, new, a new situation as well, a new solution all over again and sort of is refreshed. One of the things that I do online is I do this, like a sort of like a, the group, a small group workshop where they're looking at pitches and that they're getting ready to send out. And a lot of people think when they come in that, they want the feedback from me, you know, that I'm sure, you know, that I'm going to be able to give them that one insight that is going to, you know, just editorially change the pitch. And obviously I give my, my thoughts, but I really see my role in that situation is to help them, everybody else, everybody whose pitch is not getting workshopped at the moment to 
identify what's there, what's working really well, and then what's not. Like, where are the gaps? And then when there are things that are missing or questions that are raised, how can we creatively, with sort of the hive mind, come up with solutions? And that in that way, they're teaching themselves or sort of actively figuring it out for themselves, as is so often the case. We can't come up with those solutions or even sometimes identify what the problems are in our own story because we're just too close to it. We know way too much. Um, you know, you've, you've done all this, re, you know, pre-reporting and research and now you're trying to, you know, just write a, you know, 300 words about it. And so I, as I say, I see my role as trying to help them learn to help somebody else with their pitch. And then they've sort of set it up for themselves that they can now go and do that on their own. Cause ultimately I mean, it's great to be able to talk through a story idea with somebody. It's great to have feedback from a trusted reader, but you wind up making most of those decisions on your own at the end of the day. I do sort of shuffle this between I, I between sort of identifying as a trainer, as a teacher, as an educator, as a coach. They're all somewhat different, but particularly in the role of coach, I really see my role as of helping other people to develop that self-belief and to to work on their confidence issues and not necessarily to eliminate self-doubt, but to sort of recognize it for what it is and to be able to come around, to be able to keep working on that and to, to, to realize, yes, I've done something similar to this before. Here's how I did it before. And I have actually more tools than I remember. You know, there's often that moment of panic. Oh my gosh, it seems like I've never, ever written a story before. And if we sort of pause and say, yes, actually I have, here's the workflow I wrote for myself last time so that when I came to this moment of panic again, I'd sort of have a plan for myself about where to go. I think that that's, that that's really important for, for people to develop, especially as freelancers, because you don't necessarily have that, that boss who's going to just, you know, sort of be right there, somebody that you can turn to. I suppose not everybody has that kind of great boss and supportive boss in a staff situation, but often often in a staff situation, you have somebody at least whose job in the description is to help you, <laughs> is, is to, you know, sort of be your mentor. Um, and then as freelancers, we often don't have that. You, know, you have to sort of be your own, you have to be your own coach. You have to be your own mentor to a large extent. I did do a lot of education initially, and I think that that sort of morphed into sort of a broader umbrella of social justice. Um, I did a lot of, <laughs> I did almost everything that came my way initially, to be perfectly honest. Um, I remember that I was I was doing some food stories. I was doing some shelter stories, writing about people's homes. And I early on got asked if I wanted to do some, some reporting about multicultural marketing. That became sort of an ongoing anchor client for a long time. So it was really kind of all over the place. I definitely saw myself as a generalist. And then over time, started to identify niches, areas that I was writing about regularly and that I wanted to do more and more in. And those niches have sort of changed for me over time, but have sort of remained with social justice as well as the environment, which can fall under social justice, depending. Um, I've done a lot of stories about arts and architecture and um, travel and you know, at this point in time, a lot of people, 
I've had numerous editors, particularly in the United States, perceive me as an Africa expert, which I would never call myself an Africa expert. I mean, I have lived in South Africa for a long time, but you know, the sort of thing of like, oh, we have a story in Kenya or or Zimbabwe, can you do it? <laughs> and you know, yeah, I can, but it's you know, it's 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 not re- you know, it's it's just sort of very relational in terms of somebody's perception of what I have the ability to do. So I do still see myself really as a journalist, but who has some particular interest that I tend to write pieces about. I had started making these small videos that were sometimes on my blog and sometimes for my my students that and I so I was editing those, you know, so I had some very, very basic you know, okay, it takes me this long to edit out this many ums kind of thing. You know, I had this very rudimentary understanding of how it worked. And I had no real intention of creating one. I wasn't thinking about one. And somebody who I like and trust, and then the writer literally says to me, you should have a podcast. And I was like, don't be silly. You know, writers don't listen to podcasts. And then I heard myself say that. And I was like, well, I listen to podcasts. And, you know, by the end of the day, I was like, yeah, I should have a podcast. It was, and the concept for it was, I pretty much knew right away what it was that I wanted to do. I think I thought that the episodes would be longer than they are. I would say that's probably the main difference. But that's as I sort of started them out, like I just already had a pretty clear idea of what a lot of the main things were that people wanted to hear about. Like, oh, you know, I'm dealing with overwhelm and confusion and prioritizing it. And so it's like, I'll do an episode about that. and I'll do an episode about that. And then I also sort of mix it up in terms of, um, also inviting some guests on. I'm excited that you're going to come on as a guest as well, because I think it's, you know, people do want to hear me and there's that intimacy and then they can hear me um, while they're doing whatever they're doing. But I also think it's sort of interesting and fun. It's certainly fun for me to be able to talk to other people who are doing really cool things that I want to know more about. That's always, almost always one of my drives when I'm pitching a story is I want to know more about this thing. And so on the podcast, it gives me that opportunity as well to bring in some guests that I think can offer something a different perspective than I than I can about uh, you know either a story that they're doing a project that is of relevance and of interest to to the people who are listening. I think one thing that's real interesting about the podcast is that most of us are doing them or listening to them when we're doing something else. I'm usually listening to them when I'm walking my dog or when I'm driving the car. A lot of people listen when they're commuting, and so as a result, I know sometimes I sort of stop paying attention, but it's it's really different than when I read something on my phone, which like I say, I sort of scroll quickly and I'm waiting for that thing that's going to catch my attention. Whereas for the most part, when I'm listening to a podcast, they have my attention. I might be walking or driving, but I'm not skipping ahead to see if this is going to get interesting. Like as long as it's good from the beginning, I stay, I stay for the whole thing, which is often not the case with written materials for, for so many people these days. I actually do write the podcast for the most part, not obviously the ones when I'm interviewing, but the ones that are me, for the most part, they're scripted. There's a little bit of ad lib and improv, but I I just can't talk off the cuff. Otherwise, as you've seen, I sort of ramble. <laughs> um, and so I think it has been useful because I it's easier for me to be much more intentional about the kind of stories I want to introduce and the examples I want to use. And I, for a long time, had been trying to be doing something similar in my weekly newsletters. For years, I've been sending out this weekly newsletter. And very soon after I started the podcast, people who had been getting my newsletter for a long, long time said, this is it. This makes a lot more sense. I finally get what it is you're trying to do. That they were sort of kind of interested in what I was saying when I was writing it. But those almost always had to be much, much shorter 
just because nobody wants to read a 3,000 word email, right, or 5,000 or whatever it is. And so they are willing to listen to me talk for a much longer time than they are interested in in hearing me read. And yeah, I think it has shifted the, the way in which I think it has expanded my writing a little bit. And it's been a lot of fun. I mean, you sort of, you know, said at the very beginning that, you know, some people don't know how long that's going to go for. It'd be really easy for me to map out another year's worth of episodes. I don't actually plan that far in advance because I want to have some more flexibility. And I don't know that it will be that exciting to me forever. But for right now, it seems like a very energetic and interesting way to to connect with people and people as I say people have been responding to it which is also um very nice sort of feedback I mean the response has been pretty good overall and so I don't know I don't know that I would be as motivated if nobody were saying that they liked it and nobody was saying it helped them or anything like that the idea behind it is for it to help people sort of develop those tools so that they can move forward with with their freelancing and their writing and also engage me so that I can sort of be interested and and get that feedback from people about what kind of questions they have and what's what's coming up because as you said you know that it's important when things are changing so quickly and the industry is changing pretty rapidly and so people's questions shift like the details certainly shift uh, about a lot of about a lot of issues I've started paying a lot more attention to other podcasts that I listen to and sort of, again, sort of deconstructing what are they really doing. I notice that a lot of people do talk about a few minutes about, you know, their personal life and then, and then, okay, like, let's get to today's session. And then other people never do that. They, you know, there's no bearing of their, you know, they jump in from the first sentence. It's, it, they hit the ground running with the topic. And so I played around with that a little bit, but, um, as you, you know, sort of like, as you said, it doesn't have to be the same every time. Like, I don't feel like I'm working on a formula here. And there are certain things that come out in most episodes. Some are more successful than others. Some are topics that I'm more excited about or really like, oh, I, you know, I think this is really, really going to connect with people. But I, I suppose that I've listened to enough podcasts and, you know, sort of just seen enough TV and, and movies and stuff. It's interesting sort of how TV shows always used to be sort of a set number of minutes and now there's a lot more variability they have more freedom and it makes more sense why does it have to be exactly whatever it was 22 or 24 minutes if it's about a half an hour that's fine (laughs) you know like sort of make it make it work for the for the individual story as opposed to some predefined commercial um criteria i mean my podcast is obviously not sponsored it's kind of a niche topic i mean it's never going to have these huge downloads it's it's very very specific um but i think that it's offering something for people for i think that for my audience i don't think there's anybody else doing quite quite the same thing my three top tips for freelancers are first is to make sure that you really invest some time in learning, if not learning to pitch, at least learning to market yourself really well, that you need to get clear ideas about the kind of work that you want to do, who you want to do it for, and going after those things, not sitting back and waiting for those clients to find you. Um, That would be one. Um, I think the second one would be to start to listen to your own 
self-talk and hear what stories you're telling yourself and to try and separate out what's what's factual and what's sort of subjective and that with the things that are subjective to make sure that they really are serving you and helping you move along and if they're not um, to address those mindset issues because I think a lot of people focus on think when I accomplish these other things all of that negative self-talk will clear itself up and it doesn't, it just comes along with you. So you want to address those things early on and, or rather wherever you are, whenever you are. And I would also say that you don't have to make that distinction between doing work that you love, that is really passion fueled and has a lot of meaning for you and doing work that pays the bills, that there is an overlap. And I think that for most people, you may have some work that's one or the other, but the more that you can find work that really does both, I think that this will fuel longevity in your in in your career and, and provide more sustainability, both just sort of psychologically as well as financially. Thanks, Rebecca L. Weber, for speaking to me on the podcast. And I will be appearing on an upcoming episode of the Writing Coach podcast as well. Well, that's it for another episode of Freelance Pod. If you enjoyed what we talked about in this episode, please do get involved on social. You can find Freelance Pod on Instagram as at Freelance Pod, on Twitter as at Freelance underscore pod underscore. There's a Facebook group called Freelance Pod, and you can also sign up for the newsletter. The URL is in the show notes. Don't forget that the success of this podcast relies on you, the listeners. If you do enjoy it, please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes. This means that other listeners will find out that this podcast exists and they'll come and join us too. That's it for now. Speak to you again soon. Goodbye.